You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. It was absolute chaos. All your regulations went out the door that day. There was tremendous confusion. It was like a tsunami of people. Jerry Berry, 25-year Marine pilot, flew the ambassador out of Saigon in 1975. Tony Colson I flew with Air America from 1970 to 1975. We never did get the words that the evacuation has begun. It evolved. That's the only way I can describe it. It just evolved. People, lorries, and cars, all chasing one American evacuation convoy after the other. The streets yeah. are full. The embassy grounds are absolutely packed with people. My first trip into the embassy was strictly to get the ambassador and he didn't get on. And that was like one in the afternoon. And so we don't know what to do now. So we should start shuttling people up. And this goes on and on and the crowds. There was no end to it. Never dissipate. There was no end to it. And you just kept flying until really you reached your physical and your mental limitation. foreign policy, it was during your presidency that Saigon fell to the communists. You had been an early critic of our policy in Vietnam, not in the same sense that some Democrats were to get out of there, but in the sense that we weren't fully enough committed to a military victory. In any case, by the time you inherited it, it was almost a fait accompli, and yet it must have torn you up to, to preside over the conclusion of an obviously failed adventure. Bob, the saddest day for me and probably for any president in the White House, was to sit in the Oval Office and see on television American military and civilian personnel kicked out, literally thrown out of our embassy in Saigon. That was a sad, sad day. And it made me as president uh, feel very badly because as you have indicated, from the very outset, going back to uh, President John F. Kennedy when he made the first combat commitment of U.S. military personnel, I supported our country's policy there. I supported President Kennedy, supported President Johnson, I supported President Nixon. I was a critic of the fact that we did not use our military strength to the full capability. I believed then, and I believe now, that if we had used that military strength as we had the potential, there might have been a different result in Vietnam. Uh, I have no apologies for that support of the concept of what our country should do in Vietnam. I have no apologies for my criticism of the way the military decisions were made by the some in the White House. But I repeat, to sit there in the Oval Office and see the United States whipped, literally kicked out, was not a pleasant experience for a president of the United States. Tuesday, April 29th. The streets of Saigon, usually jammed with traffic at the morning rush hour, 
are quiet. The attack by communist aircraft at Saigon's Tansunut Airport the day before has prompted a 24-hour curfew. And the only people on the streets are ambulance drivers and policemen. With communist forces only a few miles from the center of Saigon, the order to evacuate American nationals is given. Americans and citizens of third countries who have been guaranteed space on the airlift gather at assembly points for the bus ride to Tansunut Airport. But the buses have to be abandoned when helicopters at Tansunut come under fire from both communist and South Vietnamese troops. Heavy shelling at the airport destroys planes on the ground and American Marines are killed by rocket fire. Journalists filming the action from the roof of their hotel see a South Vietnamese helicopter shot down near the grounds of the presidential palace. At least 10 people die in the crash. The American ambassador Graham Martin took personal control of the evacuation. Marines used smoke to signal helicopters they should land on the lawn behind the embassy walls where they would be protected from ground fire. For the frightened civilians, the first few hundred feet were the most dangerous. After that, they were out of range of rifle and pistol fire. The hardest part was the waiting. Many people said it was unnerving to be waiting for a ride to safety and to be hearing fighting all around you. There was always the fear that the fighting would end the helicopter. Those South Vietnamese not lucky enough to have been chosen for evacuation defied the curfew and stood outside the embassy gate, begging for a seat on the helicopters. Many of these people have relatives in Canada. Some carried visas issued by the Canadian embassy in Saigon. But for most, it wasn't enough to get them a ride out. Embassy officials feared the crowd might again storm the gate, so they called in Marine reinforcements. Attention mounted as more and more Americans arrived in the compound and began the nerve-wracking wait for a way up. Americans who in better times flocked to the embassy pool for relaxation were back again. But this time they were anything but gay. As evening approached, Ambassador Martin emerged to join the others in making the flight to an American aircraft carrier some 40 miles offshore.
than 80 helicopters shuttling people out to the carriers. Everyone was searched before being allowed to join the other evacuees. South Vietnamese Army pilots flew their families to safety aboard the carriers as well. But because there wasn't room to store their helicopters as well as those flown by American pilots, the Vietnamese were forced to ditch their aircraft at sea. The pilots were picked up by American Navy rescue boats. dusk fell on Saigon, helicopters were still taking people out of the embassy compound. In all, approximately 7,000 people, most of them Vietnamese, were airlifted to safety during the 12-hour operation. Desperate Vietnamese remained at the embassy gate, hoping against hope that they too would be evacuated. But for them, there was to be no flight to safety. When you would land, you'd just be mobbed by people. And so you look back and you could see everybody climbing in. You could feel the helicopter rock a little bit. Who knows how many were back there? I have no idea. You just slowly start to lift up. Occasionally you'd take off and out of total desperation that they were hanging on to the skids. And what are you going to do? It was beyond your control. Landing in these, we call it confined areas, was always a problem. And especially small areas like rooftops or whatever, you didn't know if they were structurally sound. You've always got something that is going to be in your path. You taxi forward, now you're looking straight down, you know, about four stories. So the helicopter is always hanging by a thread, so to speak. The only way you could describe it, it was like swarms of helicopters. That's the way you describe it, it was swarms of them. The Hancock and the Midway, both out there, they were both big deck fixed wing oh. carriers and they changed them over, repainted the spots and made them helicopter carriers yeah. for the evacuation of Saigon. Deck space was very limited. I mean, every one of the ships pushed some helicopter over the side. There was just no room for them. And you had no choice. You, had, no you choice. had to clear the decks and make room for the evacuation. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting question of how many trips you made right. and how many, I don't know the exact, but I think Mine was close to 14 trips in and out. I don't think I felt physical fatigue like I felt mental fatigue. Uh, it was just those crowds were never getting any smaller. No. You're thinking, this can't end. How do we end something uh, that's the same size crowd 12 hours into this yeah. thing as it was when we started? Yeah. And we're not making a dent. So I land on the roof. It's 4.50 in the morning. So I said, I'm not leaving until the ambassador's on right. board. And I just kind of threw in president sends. Two minutes later, the ambassador's on board. It's like, in retrospect, all he wanted was the president or somebody to order him out. Now it comes out that I brought a direct order from the president. Yes, y thank that's you. what I read. Yes. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't because the president has no calm with me. But the minute we took the ambassador out and he didn't realize it at the time, it's over now because yeah. now the Marines took charge. They locked all the doors, locked the gates, and they move themselves to the roof. Yeah. And I, I don't think at the time, until the very end, they all thought we were coming back. 
I know when we took those last Marines out, you could see the tanks entering the city. Oh. They were on the way in, and it was it was absolutely over at that point. And the chaos was still the same. On April 30th, 1975, Saigon fell, and that ended the Vietnam War. It was a tragic ending, I think. Um, uh, we had gotten out because of President Nixon in January of 73, uh, but we had made promises of what we would do when President Nixon was overthrown. Those promises weren't lived up to. President Nixon wrote about it in his book, No More Vietnams. Quote, it was deeply frustrating to watch as Hanoi steadily built up its forces in South Vietnam. Within a year of the ceasefire, Hanoi restored the military position it had held before the spring offensive in 1972. South Vietnam would again face a serious threat of renewed invasion, only now without our air support to, to back up its forces on the ground. While North Vietnam rushed troops and supplies to the front lines, Congress slashed the amount of military aid budgeted for South Vietnam. In a period of two years, from the eve of the ceasefire in January of 1973, to the eve of the final communist offensive in January 1975, we witnessed a complete reversal of military superiority from Saigon to Hanoi. We had promised in the, peace, the Paris Peace Accords to replace all arms, munitions, and war materiel destroyed or expended by South Vietnam forces after the ceasefire. That was a pledge the anti-war majority in Congress refused to fulfill. They cut the level of every aid package for South Vietnam proposed by the administration and reduced aid throughout 1974 and $700 million in fiscal 1975. Anti-war senators and congressmen argued that our military assistance was fueling the war and that reducing aid to Saigon would bring it to an end, as if South Vietnamese troops were in the North and not the other way around. It was reminiscent of an incident that occurred during the Constitutional Convention. It was proposed that there be a constitutional limit on United States armed forces of 3,000 troops, whereupon George Washington was overheard to whisper that the Constitution, perhaps, should also deny hostile foreign powers the right to invade the country with more than 3,000 men. When Congress cut American aid to South Vietnam, it neglected to slow the flow of Soviet aid to North Vietnam. Nixon went on in his book to page 210, and talked about the power uh, that the Americans, that we had. It said, quote, After we abandoned the use of power, it was seized by the North Vietnamese and Khmer Rouge communists. Our defeat was so great a tragedy because after the peace agreement of January 1973, it was so easily avoidable. Consolidating our, our gains would not have taken much to accomplish. A credible threat to enforce the peace agreement through retaliatory strikes against North Vietnam and a sufficient flow of aid to Cambodia and South Vietnam. But Congress legislated an end to our involvement. It also legislated the defeat of our friends in the same stroke. A lesson that our adversaries should learn from our intervention in Vietnam is that the United States, under resolute and strong leadership, will go to great lengths and endure great sacrifices to defend, to defend its allies and interests. We fought in Vietnam because there were important strategic interests involved, but we also fought because our idealism was at stake. If not the United States, what nation would have helped defend South Vietnam? 
The fact is that no other country would have fought for over a decade and a half a world away at great cost to itself in order to save the people of a small country from communist enslavement. One lesson we must learn from Vietnam is that if we do not exercise power for the good, there are plenty of men like Ho Chi Minh, Lee Duan, Q Sam Phan, and Pol Pot who will gladly exercise it for evil purposes. Our armed intervention in the Vietnam War was a, not a brutal and immoral action. That we came to the defense of innocent people under attack by totalitarian thugs is no moral indictment. That we mishandled it at times in no way taints that cause. South Vietnam and Cambodia were worthy of our help, and the three million people who were killed in the war's aftermath deserved to be saved. Our abandonment of them in their moment of greatest need was not worthy of our country. Another lesson we must learn is that the real world peace is inseparable from power. Our country has had the good fortune of being separated from our enemies by two oceans. Others, like our friends in Indochina, did not enjoy that luxury. Their enemies lived just a few miles away up the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Our mistake was not that we did too much and imposed an inhumane war on peace-loving peoples. It was that in the end, we did too little to prevent totalitarians from imposing their inhumane rule on freedom-loving peoples. Our cause must be peace, but we must recognize that greater evils exist than war. Communist troops brought peace to South Vietnam and Cambodia, but it was the peace of the grave. He falls as far as a human being can fall, and he finds himself in August of 1974 in San Clemente uh, with very little money, very little hope, uh, very little physical health. He's physically sick and almost dies in October of 1974, and he has to figure out a way to move forward. For his own sake, for his mental health, he has to find something he can do useful uh, for the rest of his life. And so he begins the process of sort of climbing his way out of the abyss uh, by working in his office first in San Clemente and then later in New York and then later in New Jersey. And he really executes a remarkable comeback, not politically in the sense that he was never going to run for office again, but in the sense that he mattered again, and he mattered in a, in a very big way as the book documents. So let me just mention three of the changes that I think this book shows that, that happened during this period from August of 1974 to April of 1994 with Nixon. The first change is this, he changes the ex-presidency. Um, I've said before many times when I'm out promoting this book that there will always be a debate about whether Nixon was a great president. I don't really know that there is a debate about whether he was a great former president. I think he was an outstanding former president. And in fact, in many ways, he really sets the template for what a former president should do. So when Nixon um, leaves office, there's really no guide for him. Uh, if you look at some of his predecessors, with the exception of Herbert Hoover, there's really nobody who went on and did something significant after he left office. I mean, you think about uh, Johnson going to the ranch in, in Austin. Uh, you think about Eisenhower going to Palm Springs half the year and Gettysburg half the year. Johnson wrote one memoir. Uh, Eisenhower wrote two. Um, 
Truman went back to Kansas. I mean, most of the, these folks follow sort of the George Washington, Cincinnatus model of, you know, this returning back to being a citizen. Nixon doesn't have that option. He doesn't have that option because in 1974, he's got to find a way to actually make money. He's disbarred in California. He's disbarred in New York. He has to find something he can do with his talents and his time. And of course, he also has a deep desire to sort of reestablish his name a little bit and, and, and become something of, a, of an advisor and a counselor again. And so he really creates this new model that really most of our ex-presidents today still follow. And the new model is, number one, you give speeches, uh, in many cases these days for money. You write books uh, and you maintain your contacts uh, with navigators in Washington and, and in New York and in, and in the media so that you can still have an influence. Um, Nixon is in the 1970s beginning the process of his rehabilitation by focusing on the one thing that he thinks most people will cut him some slack on, the one thing most people will still want to hear from him on, and that's his ideas on foreign policy. That was author Casey Pipes, a historian who worked for the Bush camp, uh, Bush administration, and he wrote an extraordinarily good book that I highly recommend called After the Fall, uh, the story of Richard Nixon's comeback. And uh, if you can get a copy of that book, it's an excellent book. And that comeback began in 1977 and 78. Things start to come together for Richard Nixon. He writes his memoirs, RN, the memoirs of Richard Nixon. And he agrees to a set of interviews with a, a, a guy from Britain who has kind of made his name as a TV host in Australia. You know, Nixon had all these issues with the press here in the United States, but David Frost was a a person he knew, but uh, was a, a new face, perhaps. But this will establish David Frost as a major journalistic figure for the next 40 years. He died uh, in 2013. Uh, he was on the, the, the Queen Mary. But here's a little bit about David Frost for those of you who don't know him from the coverage of his passing. A loss tonight in Britain. A famous journalist has died, and he was well-known here in America as well because of the nearly 30 hours he spent sitting across from an American president, grilling Richard Nixon. Hello, good evening, and welcome. By his own assessment, David Frost interviewed 10,000 people, athletes, entertainers, world leaders, and most famously, an American president. So that is obstruction of justice, Not just a moment. period. Uh, that's your conclusion. It is. Uh, but now let's look at the facts. Those interviews with Richard Nixon were what made David Frost famous worldwide for 29 hours facing off in front of the cameras after Nixon left office. The president can decide that it's in the best interest of the nation or something and do something illegal. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. With Frost, Nixon came very close to apologizing to the American people. I let the American people down, and I have to carry that burden with me for the rest of my life. My political life is over. Forty-five million watched. The interview so dramatic. One, you could get a million dollars, and you could get it in cash. It was turned into a 2008 Hollywood movie, Frost Nixon. One, you could get a million dollars, and you could get it in cash. I know where it could be gotten. 
Two, your major guy to keep under control is Hunt. Clearly, Look, the let me just stop you now right there because you're quoting me out of context, out of order. And I might add, I have participated in all these interviews without a single note in front of me. Well, it is your life, Mr. President. David Frost was also a pioneer in satire, poking fun at the news long before SNL or Jon Stewart, hosting programs in England, Australia, even here in the U.S. Filling in right here on Good Morning America. Good morning, America, indeed. I'm David Frost with Joan London. Yeah, David Hartman is off today. And though he sat in our studio, it was that other moment in that chair across from Richard Nixon that he'll be most remembered for around the world. Frost never stopped working. In fact, he was scheduled to interview Britain's prime minister. In this conversation with Sir David Frost, library director Timothy Naftali talks with the journalist about how the famous 1977 Frost-Nixon interviews unfolded, the behind-the-scenes negotiations, and his own recollections of the former president. This interview is about 30 minutes. My name is Tim Naftali. I'm a director of the Pre Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum. Uh, it's October 30th, 2007. We're in Washington, D.C., and I have the privilege and honor to be interviewing Sir David Frost for our oral history program. Sir David, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Pleasure, Tim. Uh, Sir David, please tell us about um, your meeting with uh, Jack Brennan, who was uh, uh, President Nixon's, former President Nixon's chief of staff, when you were discussing the nature of the interview. Well, there were one or two of those. Which one were you thinking uh, of? I was thinking of the one where you talk about arithmetics. Oh, arithmetic. Yeah. Yes, this was, this was very tense. Um, we were we were afraid that they were trying to delay things beyond a possible point to an impossible point, and so pressing for them to move. They were worried about our editing and all of that sort of thing. And defending Nixon, Jack Brennan said, listen, 60% of what that man did was great, was really good. 30% may not have been good, but he did not realize that. Well, mathematicians watching us now, this moment in history, will realize that that left 10% which were not good, and he must have realized they were not good, or were wrong, or whatever. And that was an early and amazing sort of seismic thought. But then he pressed you. Yes, and he said, and he said, and if you, if you don't do justice to the 60%, uh, then I will never forgive you, I will pursue you, I will pursue you to ruin, and so on. And I said, and if you screw us on the 10%, I will do the same to you. And that was, that was a tense situation between the two of us. And there was one other session, which I didn't know whether you meant, which was when he'd, he'd been a little bit slow in some of his answers, not, not mentally slow, but just, just not, not filibustering, but just took longer. And so, although we had 24 hours, it didn't seem like enough. And so I took Jack Brennan out to lunch at the Quiet Cannon, I think it was called. And I said, we really need another four hours, not 24, but 28 hours. And, uh, and, and we don't, we don't have any money left to pay for it. 
And so he said, oh, well, you don't have any money to pay. Well, I don't know we can do that. And then I said, because, you know, um, if we don't get that extra four hours, you know, there are, we're just going to have to drop some subjects, like China. And, of course, we got the extra four hours. Because uh, it was actually a, a, a Nixonian tactic played on Nixon, Nixon's man, perhaps. But, but there, was also, there was also a moment where Frank, Frank Gannon played a role in resolving an issue. Yes, he, he, he really engaging guy. He'd, he'd worked, I'd met him before, he worked as a researcher for Randolph Churchill. And he was known there as the Pudding Boy. Why was he known as the Pudding Boy? Because he ate pudding after pudding after pudding, or dessert after dessert after dessert. But the Pudding Boy. Oh, it's the Pudding Boy. But, uh, but Frank, very, very bright guy. And it, one of these stages, these key stages in the timing of the Watergate session, and the fact that it had to be done by a certain date, uh, in order to get on the air in time and so on. And, and I mean, it was very complicated. There were even more complications probably than even in, in my book because, I mean, there were delays, there were lawyers, there were worries that, that as long as Alderman's trials were not over, then that he couldn't talk about them. And I mean, it was, it was a really complex, complex period. And that's, and that's when the tensions were there high. Later on, I mean, Jack Brennan, uh, you know, became a good friend, and uh, and and the teams worked together like like friendly legal teams. Um, for the oral history, I'd, I'd like you to 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 document, if you will, uh, the conversation that you had with Henry Kissinger, and to tell us where it happened. Um, the one where he responds after you've interviewed Nixon on foreign policy matters. Well, what happened was that the one of the most humorous parts of the Nixon interviews was undoubtedly uh, whenever Richard Nixon talked about Henry Kissinger, because obviously these two men were umbilically linked in terms of credit from history, and they couldn't afford to snag each other off, because then the other might snag them, and it might affect their joint reputation or their solo reputation or whatever. So they both wanted to go for the, for the top billing and the responsibility for the good things and somehow slough off the bad things and so on and so forth. And so Nixon would pursue this policy of saying, oh, Henry, as he said several times, Henry was so, he was so intelligent. I mean, he's a real, he was a real intellectual. I mean, Henry was a real intellectual. I mean, and, uh, and you know, like most intellectuals, you know, he was, you know, unstable and like most intellectuals, you know, unreliable, and uh, you know, and uh, you couldn't be sure he'd stick with a point of view. Like he wanted us to change our policy on Kent State, and and uh, after Kent State, and after that had happened, that we should go back and change our policy on Cambodia. And and I had to, I had to say to him, uh, remember Lot's wife, never look back, Henry, never look back. And so that was his approach to Henry, and I was speaking to Henry Kissinger on the phone the week we'd done this interview, and he said, oh, I, you, you've been, I've been 
You've been getting me this week. He said, I expect, I expect Nixon described me as a sort of unreliable intellectual who needed his strong and sturdy hand. And uh, I said, Henry, have you been bugging these sessions? And he said, no, David, I just know my boy. I just know my boy, he said. And, uh, and, and the, the, the corollary to that was Henry's way of, of striking back, as I say, they couldn't strike back directly because they, they were linked by history. So his way of doing it was more or less to say, uh, President Nixon was a great president. He's underestimated. It's terrible the way he's underestimated. He was a great delegator. That was the great thing. And, and, and you know, he, he delegated most of the important things to me, of course, but but he was a great, you know, and that was that was. Did his. you have a chance to interview, sir? Uh, I mean, uh, Henry Kissinger. At, at yes, it's a long story. That um. when you were editing or thinking about editing the the Nixon interviews in your book, you say that uh, a lot of the, the, the a number of the first uh, minutes of conversation you thought would just go into the toilet that you were disappointed it was not as you had hoped, particularly the discussion of the 18 and a half minute gap. Give us a little bit of sense, a sense of the evolution of the interview, your confidence in the interview as it progressed. Yes, it was really the, the 18 and a half and, and the, the, first, the first program, the first day, we, we, we've been trying to decide what to do as the first particular day. And, um, and we ended up with a bit of a hodgepodge, really. And... It was the second day when we started getting really serious about Vietnam um, that one realized that we were on to firmer ground. I mean, that Vietnam material, I mean, we went over it at great length and in, in, in my book there is, you know, there's 50 or 60 pages of it. Uh, and... And Nixon, I mean, particularly Nixon being, of course, above everything else, passionate about the fact that it was Congress that lost Vietnam. I mean, that was, that was the thing he cared about saying most of all, I think, that, that the, the, the brief period when his, his peace plan survived from 73 to 75 was destroyed purely by, by the, uh, Congress and not by anybody else. And, and, uh, but so that was the subject that that really um, triggered us off in the fact that now we're now we're focusing now we're getting somewhere. One of the other things that, uh, of course, you have to be very careful of that is we had a very good girl, a woman called Jennifer Shell, who who did the transcripts every day, and we were doing sessions on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So she overnight on the Monday would produce a transcript. So when we watched the, pro the first, previous day's program, we had a, a transcript. And transcripts, are, they were almost always perfect, but we came upon one that we couldn't remember what he meant. Nixon said, and then, of course, I withdrew 50,000 men from Vietnam after I met you at uh, Midway. <laughs> and I thought, I don't remember that. Well, I mean, I certainly know, I, I don't remember him saying it, and I certainly know I was never in Midway. So we went back to the tape, and of course what he had actually said was, 
after I met two at Midway, you know, but but it's a sort of thing that could slip into a transcript and slip out into the... But you were responsible for Vietnamization then. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh, tell us, uh, in the in the play, there is a sense, and I suppose in the movie too, that there was um, some disappointment in the in the Frost team as you neared the Watergate interview. Tell me, tell us about the role that the, the, the transcripts and the other materials played in briefing you. To what extent did you think you were on top of this? That you had what you needed. Well. I felt by the time we got to the stage that I really knew the knew the transcripts as well as it was possible to to know all, all the transcripts that were available, including those ones that uh, James Reston had discovered that were available, but nobody had spotted them before. And I really felt confident in that sense, and that was a confidence that grew over the, grew over the period. The uh, the um, the anguish in the potential anguish in the minds of the team in, is is uh, built up a, a lot in uh, in the play and the film probably because because it's important to the drama and so on as uh, as uh, peter morgan always says patiently sighing to me you know david this is a play not a documentary or sometimes he says this is a documentary not a play, either way around. But but the uh, but so that he he lays it on a bit thick. They were they were concerned, and I think when you actually read again what what uh, what Bob Zelnick said about the qualities of Richard Nixon just before this session, it's in the book that I did just before. You do realize what a daunting task it was, and we, you know, I mean, the list of the things. He served as a lawyer for this, he's done da 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 I mean, it's really um daunting list, and, and we were daunted in that sense, and I was daunted in that sense, but but I I never lost my faith that we or I was, was going to pull it off. You're preparing for Watergate. After these interviews, Bob Zelnick says to the press that, this, in a sense, was the trial of Richard Nixon. When did you realize that you actually would have the opportunity to cross-examine a man who, because of the pardon, had never been cross-examined before about Watergate? And, and how did you think about this new responsibility as, as a Brit, indeed? Absolutely. That was because of the, because of the pardon and, and also because of the phlebitis, I suppose, for both reasons, he'd never been questioned on these matters. And so that was, yes, that was foremost in my mind from the very beginning, that this was a real responsibility, that it was the first, and it might be the only time, as, it, as in fact it turned out to be. Um, and so that was very much in, in our mind from the very word go, that responsibility. And... And that challenge, too. Please tell us about, um, because people will have seen the film, uh, tell us about how the break occurred in the first Watergate session. The pause. The, that that um, break in the first... Uh, I'll start the answer again. That's very interesting because that break was was obviously unplanned and 
initially misconstrued by myself because we were approaching the the vital last 15 20 minutes of the uh, of the interview we'd been through a lot of the mistakes we'd been through Holman and Ehrlichman's demise or ouster and so on and Nixon was starting to give even more than he ever had up until that point. And suddenly I saw Jack Brennan, his chief of staff, come into the room with a, with a sign which, as far as I could see, said, let us talk. And I thought, oh, well, he's never been in before. Why? Well, this is interesting. We can have a quick tape stop and find out. So I said, we've just got to change the tapes and so on. And as he came closer, I realized that he did, didn't, in fact, say, uh, let us talk. It said, let him talk. So in other words, he was pressing for the fact that I not continue too much of an interrogation that might shut Nixon up because he thought Nixon was was on the verge of having more things to say that he'd never said before. So Jack Brennan, and that was on the side of the angels at that particular moment, in reality. Equally dramatic in the play um, is a different uh, scenario where Jack Brennan sees Nixon about to give and wants to get hold of him for a minute, just not necessarily to shut him up, but at least to make him aware of what he's on the verge of doing. So Brennan comes in, interrupts the, everyone gets angry, um, and he interrupts to basically say, I want to talk to, come with me, as it were, and, and he takes Nixon out. Um, and uh, so that the two versions, both dramatic, uh, one true and one not true, uh, but had different motions, really, because Jack Brennan seemed to be trying to slow Nixon down in the play, whereas he seemed to be encouraging me to let Nixon roll in, in the actual real, real version. In your, uh, in your writing about this, you say that you were a little worried that after this remarkable moment, he had reached, the president reached a point of vulnerability that you could not get him to again, but you do in the second Watergate interview. How do you do that? Well, the, the, fortunately, the first interview of the two days on Watergate was such a disaster for him because he was not um, admitting anything at all, not admitting anything. And his people, who had said that they could never brief him in advance because Watergate was too, was too personal, just too deep a hurt, too personal, um, must have, uh, in some way, got their point across to Nixon that this total stonewall was doomed, doomed to failure and perhaps even ignominy. And when he came on the second day, first of all, he was late, 18 minutes late, not 18 and a half minutes late, that would have been too poetic, but the, uh, but, and, and he looked, he looked, rather like he did um, on, during the days of the actual Watergate, Watergate thing taking place. And 
And so he came on the second day and he had obviously either worked out, I never found out the answer to this, either worked out talking with his aides, who suddenly decided they had to talk to him about Watergate, even though it was so painful, or on his own, he had worked out that he had to go further. So, it, so what made the second day work after the first day was the fact that the first day was such a disaster for him and he realized it because I knew the tapes as well or better than he did and point after point and particularly really the 16 or 17 points about John Dean mentioning money and or the conversation between Nixon and Dean mentioning money um, those had such potency that uh, that he therefore it was the it was the very non-communicative nature of the first day that made the second day possible, even perhaps inevitable. Do you feel that the, the, the these, un, uh, to that point, unused transcripts that James Reston had found, that they were the ones that helped push him over the edge? They were the, the unused transcripts were very helpful, but, but they were not that important because there were two days on Watergate Two, two and a half hours for each. And these tapes came in the first hour, really. Uh, first hour of day one. And so it was four and, four and a half hours later, in television terms, um, when he started to crumple, to give in, or whatever. What do you recall of your reaction when he asked you to suggest a better word than mistakes, to substitute for mistakes? That was the most heart-stopping answer I've ever had, because I knew that he was more vulnerable at that moment than he probably ever would be again, and that I must phrase my response uh, in order to get that, get that across. Um, and I threw down my clipboard in order to... Um, indicate that this was not a scripted job, that this was not prepared uh, ambush or anything like this. This was a moment that neither of us had ever expected would, would happen. Uh, and then I phrased the... I tried to say... I said, there, it seems to me that there are three things the American people want you to say and want to hear. And the first is that that there was wrongdoing in uh, the White House, maybe criminality indeed, but secondly, you let down your whole oath of office, and thirdly, that you put the American people through two years of needless pain, and you apologize for that. And I said, that's difficult for anybody, and I know it's particularly difficult for you, but if you don't do it, I think you'll be haunted for the rest of your life. And that's when he took the three points, remembered the three points, and dealt with the three points over the next 20 minutes, leading to that climax. What were you thinking? I'm going to have to run in a okay. minute. Okay, um, last two questions, okay. quick. Um, uh, when that was done, you... what? What, what do you recall as your reaction as you're listening to the president say this? The question or to the, the answer, his answer, yeah. as you're listening to it. I remember thinking, you know, people often write about how 
how I listen when I'm doing interviews, because anyone who does interviews listens if they've got any sense. But I mean, and, and I was thinking this is, this is the most uh, powerful example of that, that you know, one, one, must, one must not let a nuance pass, as it were, in this thing. Not to interrupt him, because as Jack Brennan said, let him talk, but, um, but in terms of not missing, missing any opportunity. And then as the, and as he came through to the thing, and when he said, he had said on the night that he, before he, he, he said his farewell speech, he had said to, and he quoted this, that he said to his friends and his group of friends he met about six or seven o'clock in the evening, I hope I haven't let you down. And at that point, obviously, they were intended to all say, no, of course not, Mr. President, not at all. You've done a wonderful job and very unfair. You know, I mean, that would have been... It, it wasn't a, a genuine confession. It was, it was a, something to get a warm response. But then when in the interviews, and he got to that point and he said, I said, I hope I haven't let you down. Well, that said it all. I had. I'd let down the hopes of all young people and so on, you know. But it was just that... Had moment. you expected to get this from him? Pardon? Had you expected to get this from Nixon? Had you I, think, I think we... I think he went further than we could really have ever se really seriously hoped. Um, now, I'm a... I'm an optimist, but in this particular case, I think I think he's he said everything and more that one could have hoped. If you feel that he is stonewalling, or from what you've learned in your research, lying, what do you do? I shall say so, again and again and again. I must say that I shouldn't give the impression before getting to the session that I am implying that I think he will be lying because I don't think that the stonewall approach will be the one he'll take. I hope the approach he'll take will be the one of a cascade of candor. A cascade of candor from Richard Nixon? Is this what you expect? No, it was just a phrase that I thought would appeal to you. Later in this broadcast, we'll get Frost's assessment as to how candid Mr. Nixon actually was. The interview sessions took place at a house 10 miles up the road from San Clemente. Why here? Because the Coast Guard radar signal off San Clemente interfered with the taping. When Nixon was president, he could order that signal turned off. He can no longer. The taping sessions overall ran 28 hours, 45 minutes. Frost had the right to select what he wanted from the tapes. He had complete editorial control, he says, down to the four 90-minute segments that will be broadcast. In the area of saying we were trying to keep them to what they'd already agreed or we were trying to get new concessions, how do you think he'll respond to that? Frost has had a team of researchers working for months. Before each interview session, they put their boss through hours of grilling, gaming, trying to prepare him for anything Mr. Nixon might throw at him. But all the woodshedding may not have helped David. He is hardly going to confess on the air anything about Watergate. 
On the other hand, a great deal of material has come to light since he last spoke publicly. A lot more facts are on the record. He hasn't, in fact, been interviewed since the smoking pistol was released, for instance. And so, therefore, um, whether he confesses or he doesn't confess, his explanation has to embrace a great many mammoth new points. If he's going to do anything of that sort, he's going to do it in his book, which is worth three or four times much, as much money to him. Why would he give it to you? Because he realizes that television is a more powerful medium than a book. If he has made an impression of telling the truth on television, if he has told the truth on television, millions and billions of people will have seen that. That's the reason why, because he realizes that if he misses this opportunity, no one's going to buy the book anyway. Does he have a piece of the profit? He, or is this a flat deal? Well, I can't go into any of the, the details. No, wait, 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 wait. If, let's say, you paid him $600,000 as a down payment or whatever, and you make $3 million, does he have a piece of the well, I'm, action, as they say? As of the action, as they say. Well, I'm really forbidden by my pledge to talk about that. Then you cannot say no. In other words, the impression that you're leaving intentional or otherwise, is that he does have a percentage of the action, as you put it. Well, ask Swifty about that, because I have promised that I will not give any details about that particular part of the arrangement. Swifty wouldn't say, but we have learned that over and above the $600,000 down payment, Richard Nixon does own 10% of all profits from the interviews. And that could be a lot of money, what with worldwide sales, radio, and subsidiary rights. We have learned some other things, too. Enough stations will carry the interviews to reach 90% of all U.S. television homes. The commercial time in the broadcasts had not been sold out as of last Friday, and the asking price for those commercials had diminished by almost a third. But that could change tomorrow. Time magazine, which, as we said, had special access to the Frost-Nixon interviews, reports... Nixon was confronted with a heretofore unrevealed transcript of a tape recording of an early conversation between him and special counsel Charles Colson, in which Nixon said, quote, the cover-up is the main ingredient. That's where we've got to cut our losses. The president's losses are to be cut on the cover-up deal. At this point, Time says Nixon was stunned. After the interview, he asked his aides, what was that tape? I'm sure I never heard that tape before. Find out about that tape. Some and substance of the time report is that the former president, while never acknowledging a criminal act or even criminal intent to Frost, nonetheless wound up at the end of the interview a defeated, drained man. And time concludes, the spectacle of such a once proud man being so humbled in public is certain to create sympathy for him. They go on, his worst moments in the interview paradoxically could conceivably mark the beginning of Nixon's reincarnation as a public figure. I let the American people down. And I have to carry that burden with me for the rest of my life. You got caught up in something yeah. and then it snowballed. It was my fault.
I'm not blaming anybody else. Now, reading as you've requested yes, right, the thing, the whole context. Let me, let me just stop that you is... right there. I want to say right here and now, I said things that were not true. If I try and rob a bank and fail, that's no defense. I still tried to rob a bank. I did not have a corrupt motive. What did Holderman tell you during the 18 and a half minute gap? There was no cover up of any criminal activity. That is obstruction of justice. Not just a moment. Period. That's your conclusion. I did not commit, in my view, an impeachable offense. I was concerned about whether or not the other side was bucking us. I cut off one arm and cut off the other. No, I don't interpret that that way I at all. I can't recall that conversation. I said things that were not I true. I brought myself wrong. Why didn't you stop it? I gave them a sword. And they stuck it in. And they twisted it with relish. Stuart Shane with you on the Friday show. We're going to begin the broadcast today remembering the anniversary of Nixon's visit to Hyden, Kentucky. 43 years ago today, July 2nd. 1978. And one of my good friends who was covering that news event on this day at Channel 57 is Paul Tauby. Well, you know, back in the day, I was just thinking, if we go down memory lane, Richard Nixon, his first public appearance since the Watergate issue, and he resigned as president, he showed up in London, Kentucky. At the time, I was working for Channel 57, and I went over and Nixon got off that plane, and all these reporters from the national networks are there back when we had three, NBC, CBS, ABC. But I got up to the front, and I said, Mr. Nixon, why did you come to Hyden, Kentucky? And he looked at me, and he said, I got an invitation. But I was the only one that got to ask him a question, and I went on. And, you know, when I covered that event over at the dedication of the Nixon Center in, in Hyden, I had to go through five roadblocks, and man, they checked me out. Something I just had to. They went through my vehicle and all my equipment, and finally I got to the gym. And there was, I guess, I have agents, and I went down, and I had my camera with me. And he said, "You can't go there." And I went down there anyway, and I got a picture of all the people. Judge, uh, county Judge Carol Peek was our county judge at that time, Perry County. Okay, I remember you there. I, I was there, too, that day, back in <laughs> 1978. Vernon Cooper always said, I was there. and uh, Yes, Dr. Cooper, we miss him. <laughs> yes. All righty. Appreciate your uh, memories. Okay, thank you. Okay. Hyden, Kentucky. Uh, uh, this little town in Kentucky named its gymnasium, brand-new gymnasium and, and center Recreation Center and Facility for the Community after President Nixon in 1978. And they reached out to him and invited him to come and speak and do the ribbon cutting and, and the first event there. And the air conditioner didn't work. <laughs> so the great video of it, you see Nixon's got sweat through his suit. But he spoke for 40 minutes and he, you can just see how happy he is to be there. And it's a great little gesture from this little tiny town. You know, go back to the Frost Nixon uh, interviews. That's a very adversarial uh, show. I own those, and you know, there's a little bit of trying to make Nixon look bad or sound bad. Or I, I don't want James Rustin wrote a book. The 
the uh, conviction of Richard Nixon. And that's nonsense. Let me tell you, Richard Nixon held his own just fine in those Frost Nixon interviews. And, uh, you know, anybody who tells you any different, I invite you to go watch him. He answers the questions. He gets through the Watergate sections really well. And, and, you know, he's apologetic. I think he did feel bad about what had happened in Watergate. And you've got to realize that there were criminal acts uh, committed down on the lower levels of, of his campaign. And, uh, you know, the cover-up is a case, as Dwight Chapin said, for nine months, no one dealt honestly with Nixon. But in Hyden, Kentucky, he had a chance to just be uh, treated well and, and loved. And, you know, I always tell people about this. It spoke volumes because after everything that people had done to him, uh, the Democratic Party, Ted Kennedy's operatives, uh, the, the Irvin Committee and their operatives, uh, the force of the resignation, uh, to have, always having to hear you resigned in disgrace, all of that is designed to do what it did, which was drive Richard Nixon's numbers down to 30%. But, you know, as time healed, us little people in the South, in the middle of the country, in the heartland of America, you know, we don't we don't cut and run down here. And we don't play those games like they do up there with those big elitists in this country. And Richard Nixon was a beloved figure. And no matter what they did to him, it spoke volumes. There's this little tiny town, and they came out by the thousands to see him. And, you know, just so you get a feeling for what, for just how small this town is, I found this really great uh, uh, introduction to Hyde in Kentucky from somebody on on YouTube. Uh, it's like a tour of the little town. They have a little band playing downtown. And uh, I thought it might give you just a feeling for just, hey, this is really the heartland of America who came out and embraced Richard Nixon and gave him that opening of the door of which this great comeback began. And you just got to appreciate it. And, you know, I looked it up. The Richard Nixon Center is still there in Hyden, Kentucky. This is a brief visit to Hyden, Kentucky. Hyden, Kentucky is the county seat of Leslie County, Kentucky. Let's take a look around. It's a very small town in the mountains of eastern Kentucky. Hyden is the uh, biggest stop, I guess you'd say, between Harlan, Kentucky, and Hazard, if you're going that way. Hyden may be most noted for being the hometown of a college football player and briefly NFL football player, quarterback Tim Couch. As I said, Hyden is the county seat of Leslie County, and you're looking at the Leslie County Courthouse. Sounds like they're playing some music somewhere out in front of the courthouse there, or was. I usually discover stuff like that just as they're finishing. Looks like they're having something in the park over there. Looking back here at the courthouse again. We're at the Riverfront Park. It looks like they're having some music on Thursday night. Let's take a quick look and listen.
Satan. <laughs> and the name of that band's Hillbilly Jed. You say it was Hillbilly Jed? Hillbilly Jed, just like on the shirt. There you go. That's the name of the band. Good band. I'm sorry, I just got one here. Uh, get We're going back towards the courthouse now. Leaving the park and the music. Wish we didn't have to, but uh, this was an unplanned stop. We're back at the courthouse. Looking at a little, a little bit of a Leslie County history. Created in 1878 from Play County, Harlan, and Perry County. Name named for Preston H. Leslie, Governor of Kentucky, 1871-1875. Montana Territorial Governor, 1887-1889. U.S. District Attorney, 1894-98. Appointed by President Cleveland. Died 1907. Buried in Montana. Now, that guy had a life. Hey, look at this. I'll give you a minute to read that and you pause it if you want to. It's an interesting story about the Frontier Nursing Service. And as I said, we're here at the uh, courthouse and hiding. And you know, like, guys having trouble getting this four-wheeler started over there. Like so many of these small towns in the mountains, hiding tries hard to stay alive. And uh, it's never, you know, you, you see stories in the news on these small towns, and they talk about drugs and poverty. And it is bad. It's bad everywhere, though, in the big cities, too. You get in these towns, and you meet some of the people, and you look around, and they're not as bad sometimes as they're made to look on the news. And Hyden is certainly one of them places. It's a wonderful little town that tries hard to make you feel welcome and to put a good show on for you. And this is... A all too brief visit to Hyden, Kentucky. And that's all. And the guy got his four wheeler started. <laughs> hey, you're letting the cold out. Close the door. But first, like this video and subscribe to this channel. Thank you. And that channel is the Ignited Coyote of YouTube. This is Ernest Sparkman broadcasting live from Leslie County from the Richard M. Nixon recreational complex that is to be dedicated here by the former president of the United States, Richard M. Nixon, who is to come into Leslie County sometime this afternoon. And we're broadcasting now at this moment from the new uh, recreational complex, which is a beautiful building that uh, the carpenters and the construction people, the concrete men, are still here. They're even uh, out front pouring concrete, so they're working like beavers, and I'm sure they'll be working uh, throughout this evening and night to get this uh, building prepared for the dedication. There's uh, huge rolls of carpet uh, on the floor that have not been unrolled or unwrapped yet. So I see four American flags with gold eagles uh, pierced on top that are still in wraps on the stage, and the stage from which uh, the former president will speak is approximately 20 feet to our right. Uh, we're speaking to you from a three-tiered podium, so to speak, that has been built solely for the press, 
for the uh, networks. ABC uh, is here, uh, CBS is here, NBC is here, U UPI, Associated Press. And I even noticed uh, a phone here uh, that says Night Rider News, whoever that may be. So the uh, press is here in, in great numbers. Downtown Hyden, as we drove through a few moments ago, is filled with people already at this early hour. Uh, traffic already is beginning to be a problem. County Judge Muncy's office is a madhouse uh, because we tried to get in there and uh, it was people lined up apparently trying to get passes to get into this event. Uh, certainly this is a town of excitement. It's uh, sort of like uh, the feeling of, that one gets when you go to a carnival already. And the hammering in the background is the gentleman to my left here from ABC who's setting up his lighting system. Uh, and uh, so the security here is unreal. Uh, we had even trouble getting in here today to set up the broadcast equipment. Uh, you have to have a pass uh, to do anything and everything. In fact, uh, I almost began to wonder whether or not I'd have to have a pass to get out of here to go back home this evening. This is Ernest Sparkman reporting from Leslie County for WKIC News. President Nixon received the red carpet treatment when he arrived in eastern Kentucky. Thousands came to Hyden to see the former president and the dedication of the Nixon Recreation Center. Ernest Sparkman described the excitement in Leslie County for listeners on WSGS Radio. This is Ernest Sparkman broadcasting live from Leslie County. Downtown Hyden, as we drove through a few moments ago, is filled with people already at this early hour. Uh, certainly this is a town of excitement, the feeling of, that one gets when you go to a carnival already. Uh, the security here is unreal. Uh, we had even trouble getting in here today to set up the broadcast equipment. Uh, you have to have a pass uh, to do anything and everything. In fact, uh, I almost began to wonder whether or not I'd have to have a pass to get out of here to go back home this evening. The 37th President of the United States, Honorable Richard M. Nixon. The former president gave a 40-minute speech in the brand-new but hot gymnasium. May I first say how deeply grateful I am for your very warm reception. Those people outside who think it's a little warm, you ought to be in here. <laughs> this is Ernest Sparkman reporting from Leslie County for WKIC News. 
thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.